All right. Bible's out. Um, John 16. Um, we're doing our legalism check this morning to see if, how legalistic we've grown. Like if it freaks you out that we're not standing for the word of God, I would say that's a good thing, but also we don't want to get legalistic in that. We just don't want to have you stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. So we can stay seated this morning for the reading of God's word, even though we do honor it in, its, in, our, in our hearts. So we've made it all the way through. We've been preaching through um, the book of John, and we've made it all the way through the 16th chapter. We've made it through 15 chapters. And this morning we start into the, we break over and we start into the 16th chapter. We'll look at the first 11 verses. Um, John writes this. He says, I have said all of these things to you. I have said, I'm sorry. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They were, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Verse number seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you have given it to us, that the helper came and has come and is among us and is with us. He has inspired your word to be written. He has superintended over it throughout the century so that what we can hold in our hands by faith, we can say that it is your word. We can say when we finish reading it, thus saith the Lord. And now what we would ask is the Spirit would take this word and bring it at home to our hearts. Lord, there may be some here this morning who are drifting away, falling away. May your word come to them as a warning to fight the drift. To fan into flame what has been given, what's been birthed in them, their faith to contend for it, to fight for it, to earnestly seek you, Lord. And Lord, there may be some here this morning who have yet to repent. They've yet to turn to you, Lord. They may have some um, appearance of religion, but they've yet to genuinely believe. And I pray that you would do what only you can do in resurrecting the dead, that the Spirit, the Spirit would bring uh, that conviction to their hearts. It would cause them to turn to your righteousness, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. A couple of things I wanna say is one is I'm super excited to preach this text of scripture to you for a couple of reasons is one, it helps me in my preaching to see how Jesus preaches. And the second thing is I wanna be completely honest that if had you have asked me before like 
two weeks ago. Andy, what does um, chapter 16, when it talks about that the Spirit comes um, concerning uh, sin and righteousness and judgment, what does that mean? I would have probably told you something, but I don't know that I would have been all that correct. So this week I've learned something, which is a great thing. I've been studying God's word for quite some time now, almost 30 years, and I'm still learning new things from God. And so I'm really excited. I think some of that excitement will show, especially towards the end, but we'll start here. Um, Sometimes I get accused as a preacher, I get accused of being repetitious. In fact, I went to dinner with some folks from, uh, from the Point Community Church and someone said to me, he said, Andy, I've noticed that you actually say the same thing in every sermon, you just say it in a couple different ways, right? And I would say guilty as charged and now I have a better reply to that. I can say this, I'm just being like Jesus. Like as I read this text of scripture and for those of you that have been with us as we've been working our way through this upper room discourse, so that's the part that we're in, is Jesus is in the upper room It's hours before his uh, trial, hours before his own death and uh, days before his own resurrection. But Jesus is with his disciples and it's called the upper room because that's where they are, the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. It's Jesus is basically his final sermon that he's preaching to his disciples. And if you notice, Jesus is just saying the same thing over and over and over again. Like as fact, as I worked through it, I was like, gosh, what else can I say about this? Because we've kind of said the same thing. I mean, look with me, if you will, in the text. It starts off verse number one. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. That sounds just like what Jesus said in the 15th chapter over and over again when he said, abide, 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 abide in me. The second thing that Jesus says in this, if you'll notice, is Jesus also says, they're gonna put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, they're gonna come, they're gonna think they'll be doing a service to God and they're gonna persecute you. You are gonna suffer. Well, that's the same thing he said just last week whenever he said, and the world will hate you. Jesus also, he goes on, he says, but now I'm going to him who has sent me. I'm going back to the father. I'm going to ascend and the spirit is going to descend. How many times? I know for three weeks we covered the advantages to Jesus's ascension and the spirit's descension. And here we are again, Jesus is saying it to them again and again and again, over and over again. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to know. Very simply, this as my disciples, as my followers, that the world hates you, but I love you. The world is your enemy, but I am your friend. The world will give you trouble and anxiety, but I will give you my peace. The world will cause you sorrow, but I will give you my joy. The world will kill you, but I will give you eternal life. The world is under Satan's power, but you have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches his disciples this. Jesus repeatedly says this to his disciples so that when it happens, they don't freak out. Why does Jesus say this over and over and over again? Well, we need to learn from repetition. But why why is Jesus saying these very things to them? So that when it occurs, when persecution comes, whenever the world turns against them, whenever all of these things, and even whenever the Holy Spirit descends, when Jesus leaves their midst, that they don't freak out. He wants them flowing out from his love for them. He wants them to be aware of his plan. He wants them to be fully aware of the plan, that there is a plan in place. Nothing should take you by surprise. Now abide in me and now go and bear fruit. I've never coached a single session of anything, not intramural, not anything. I did play intramural sports for a short season, a very, very short season. 
and we, we practiced and we went and we did conditioning and I didn't want to go, I didn't want to do it, but my parents thought it'd be good for me to be in organized sports. And so we would go through all of these drills, we'd spend all of these times and we would say, all of this is gonna happen. And I was not athletic and I'm still not athletically inclined whatsoever. I'm a nerd, I'm just bent that way and I've embraced it and it's all good, right? But I just wasn't athletic. And so they worked through the drills and finally it came like our third game in that they decided they're gonna give Andy Lawrence some minutes, right? And so they put me into the game. And so we've got plans drawn up. My coach takes out the whiteboard clipboard that's also a dry erase and we draw up a plan and all this is happening. And so I go in and I know we're supposed to pick and roll and do all of those basketball things that you're supposed to do. And all of a sudden this guy comes driving down the court toward me. And I hear my coach that I dearly love, Andy, stop him. And so I did what I only knew to do. I freaked out and I just tripped the mug. Like all of my sports, I never scored a single point in any sport organized whatsoever, but I have one foul on my record. It was that foul right there. That when it came time to execute, I couldn't execute. I didn't fall. I didn't, I didn't carry out the plan. I, I freaked out. And what Jesus is saying to them by repetition of telling them what's going to happen is so when it occurs, when it happens, don't freak out. Stick, abide stay and go and bear fruit. Go and be the church. That's what we say every week. Go and bear the, go and bear, uh, go and be the church. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. Let's get into the text. Verse number one, Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. This raises the question whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. I mean, this is a, a doctrinal issue here that Jesus is speaking to. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Why would Jesus say this? Is this true? Can this happen? Can they fall away? I don't know if it answers the question specifically whether or not Christians can lose their salvation or not, but I do know this, what the text is teaching us is that seemingly disciples can fall away. Disciples who have it all together on the outside, who are false disciples, artificial disciples, outward they seem and they appear to be true disciples, they can fall away. If you don't believe me, see Judas. Moments before this has happened, a couple of things have occurred. Go back and we, all of them are gathered together in the room together and Judas is in their midst and none of them in there are looking at Judas going like, what's he doing in here? Judas seemed like he fit into the room. He fit into the picture. If you were to step into that moment and say, hey, someone in here, in fact, Jesus does, someone will betray me and they're whispering, who is it? Who is it? Nobody goes, oh, it's probably Judas. But then what happens? Jesus outs Judas and Judas leaves the room. Judas falls away. That's the picture. What Jesus is saying to his 11 disciples is don't do what Judas did. Don't fall away. Stay, abide, press in, stay. No one would have questioned the sincerity of Judas's faith. And yet now Judas has left the room and he is currently, while Jesus is speaking this, Judas is selling Jesus out to religious leaders. It brings us to this. Let's talk about this. There are basically four types of people. And even in this room, there are four types of people, especially when it comes to our assurance of our faith and whether or not we truly and genuinely believe. There are just four. At least we can group them together in big groups like this. Here are the four types. Number one, there are those who are unsaved and they know it. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and called them to believe in Jesus and they've rejected, just out and out rejected the gospel? I have. 
I don't believe that. I've had, I've had people tell me, that's fine for you to believe, but I don't believe that. They are unsaved, unconverted, and they know it. They admit it. Number two, there are those who are saved, who are genuinely saved, genuinely converted, genuinely regenerate, and they know it. This isn't something that's a, an area of pride in their lives. They have confidence in their faith. They know in whom they have believed, and they are convinced in him. They know who Jesus is. They believed in Jesus. They came to Jesus with the empty hands of faith and they believed in Christ and they've been saved, regenerate, made new. But then there are subcategories maybe of that. There are those who are saved, genuinely saved, genuinely converted, but they lack the confidence in their salvation. They lack that, the the fact of whether or not I'm really convinced in there. Am I, they question that all the time. Am I really saved? Does Jesus really love me? Is this really for me? They're saved, but they lack confidence in their salvation. And number four, then there are those who are unsaved, who have religion, but they don't have Jesus. They're self-deceived. They're deceiving others. They're culturally Christians. They have a form of religion, but they lack the power. They deny the power of salvation, which is the gospel. They deny the gospel. They're not genuinely believed. They're not genuinely changed. They've never been transformed. They went forward somewhere and prayed a prayer and and shook a pastor's hand, possibly even got baptized, possibly got christened, possibly got confirmed, possibly something else happened to them. And yet they've never been inwardly raised, resurrected from the dead to new life. They've yet to genuinely repent and have faith in Christ And Jesus says these things like this. I say this to you so that you do not fall away because he wants those who are saved and lack confidence to have confidence. And second is he wants those who are unsaved but are self-denied. He wants them to come to a point of salvation. Jesus wants true believers, true disciples. He wants them to have eternal security in him. He wants them to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they are loved and forever kept by God and that you will never be rejected. You will never be turned away by Jesus. And that's a theme throughout John. Over and over again, John has said those very things. I mean, Jesus had said those very things to his disciples. In fact, in the upper room discourse, how many times has Jesus told his disciples how much he loved them? He's not saying to them, hey, you're on a trial run here to be my disciples. Hey, work real hard at my love. And if you do real good, then I'll love you. He's not saying, hey, I'm kind of loving you, but I'm kind of not like a yo-yo. You got it as long as you're good. But then if you don't, I'm gonna pull. Jesus isn't saying any of those things. In fact, the upper room discourse starts in John 13, verse number one. It starts with these very words that Jesus says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. That's what Jesus is about. He wants them to be assured of his love. But then also Jesus wants, Jesus wants those who are not true believers, false believers. You have no, no assurance. And what is the difference though? What's the difference between the true? How do we know? What's the evidence of that? And here's the evidence of whether or not you're a true believer or a false believer, their evidence shows up in your perseverance. Do you remain? Do you abide? 
People will often ask me as a pastor, they will say, pastor, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And my reply to that is, would be something like this. Uh, I don't know, but I, I believe if saved, then always saved. But if you're saved, then you're always saved. If you're genuinely converted, genuinely transformed, genuinely born again, then you are always saved. They will ask, pastor, do you believe in eternal security for the believer? And they my answer to that would be yes, with equal emphasis on eternal security and the believer. To whom does eternal security hold? It holds for the believer. And who is the believer? The person who continues to believe. It's not a one-time belief. It's not that you just believe one time upon the person and the work of Jesus and then you're good to go, ticket to heaven. No, 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 that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is continual belief day by day, moment by moment, life, you know, month after month, year after year of believing in Jesus in the person and the work of Jesus and letting Jesus as a real person for who he is through his word and through his spirit transform you and change you and grow you and mature you. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about being grown by Jesus, about being in a relationship with Jesus, about being known, about knowing Jesus and Jesus knowing you lifelong. Now that doesn't mean you're not gonna have seasons of doubt. Good grief. It's not gonna be there times where you lack assurance. There's not gonna be times that you even lack assurance about your own salvation. There may be times where you lack assurance of whether or not God even exists, but what's the trajectory of your life? Is it belief in Christ, trusting in Christ? The reformers call this position the perseverance of the saints. And that's what Jesus is saying here. True saints, the truly saved, you will persevere until the end. And how is that working out? What's working out is you put forth effort. Jesus isn't saying to his disciples here in this first verse, hey, just kick it in neutral. You'll be okay. See you on the other side. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying to them is make sure that you persevere, stay in the faith, fight the drift. Christians, listen to me, fight the drift. For most of us, the natural inclination of our hearts is not to drift towards godliness, but to drift towards ungodliness. It's not to drift towards faith and belief in Christ, but it's to drift towards agnosticism and laziness and whatever else and lukewarm feelings. You gotta fight the drift. That's why we do what we do here. Why do we do community groups and DNAs and gatherings and meals? We do all of that to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry in your own heart is to fight the drift. I feel it in my own life. I feel it. And if I feel it, I know that you gotta feel it. And you gotta fight the drift. You gotta press in, press in to know Christ. Press in to spend time with Christ. Press in to spend time with this word. There are millions of things vying at our times that don't mount to a hill of beans in the end. And the final analysis, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of that stuff will be rubbish and burned up. And the only the things that will last are the things that we've done in the name of Christ and for Christ. That's why you gotta fight the drift. That's why you gotta get up early in the morning or stay up late at night and get your nose in the book, spend time on your knees, spend time with your children, spend time with the saints in church, spend time under the preaching of the word, spend time singing songs about Jesus. You gotta do it, why? To fight the drift in your own heart. And that is what Jesus is saying here. My disciples, these dudes spent time with Jesus, spoke with Jesus, touched Jesus, saw Jesus, a resurrected Christ. And Jesus would say to them, 
Hey, I'm saying all of these things to keep you from falling away. Stay. Church, may we stay and may we abide and may we press in and keep staying and keep abiding and keep pressing in. All right, that's sermon one. Sermon number two, you ready? We persevere knowing also that the promise of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's jump in. We're on verse number two. Here we go. But we'll go, we'll go quickly. So Jesus says this, that you have to persevere. You have to stay and keep you from fi- falling away. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Hey, there's gonna be some cost. You're gonna have some skin in this game. You're gonna be socially outcast is what Jesus is saying here. They're gonna put you out. Indeed, the hour is coming. When whenever who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. There've been more Christians killed by religions than maybe anything else. That's what he's saying. Like what happens here? Who's the first persecutors of the church? The Jews are the first persecutors of the church. You would see Saul of Tarsus, one of the strongest, stoutest um, persecutors of the early church. And what does Paul think he's doing when he's doing it? He thinks he's serving God. He thinks he's uh, uh, stamping out these blasphemers, stamping out this, you know, rabble rousers, these Christians that are turning the world upside down. You can fast forward and see this all throughout history. I said it last week. The, 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 the Holy Roman Church will be one of the greatest uh, persecutors of true, true Christianity you've ever seen. Not everything that's called church, not everything that's called Christianity is genuinely Christianity. But you can see this all throughout history. You can see they think that they're serving God whenever he does that. And he says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They don't know the Father. They're not truly saved. They're not truly the people of God. And they don't know me, Jesus. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So when persecution happens, I said this to tell you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I was there, I was protecting you. If you've got questions, you can answer me. You can ask me and I would have answered you. But verse number five, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So you're sad that I'm leaving. We've seen this again. The disciples are sad because Jesus is departing. But then look at what Jesus says, something remarkable here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now we've seen this before. Capital helper, capital H is the word paraclete in the Greek. And what it means is is another one, another that comes alongside an advocate, a helper, a comforter, even though the spirit does much more than helping, although he does help. He does more than comforting, although he does comfort. He's the one who comes alongside of us, helping us and encouraging us and spurring us on. But look at what he says about this particular part of his ministry. But he says, um, the helper will come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That's exactly what happens. Jesus ascends. We see this in Acts, the first chapter. And in Acts, the second chapter, you see the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. And when he comes, now he's getting into the ministry, the particulars. What is it the Spirit will do? When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, What does Jesus mean by this when he says here, conviction? 
Now, keeping all things honest and equal, um, I was greatly helped by uh, Pastor John MacArthur um, this week. So if you Google some of this and look it up, you'll go, hey, that's where he got, yeah, it's a great sermon. Look at it, listen to it, read it. But here's what conviction means. Oftentimes when we talk about conviction and we see it in here in this text, and this is probably the way I would have talked about it is the Holy Spirit comes to, to help us to feel sorry when we do wrong. When we say that I'm, uh, I, I'm convicted about something, what we're talking about being convicted about something is, means that we feel sorrow for that thing. We feel bad about it. We feel remorse for it, right? I feel, I feel convicted. We could say, uh, I feel convicted currently about my, my overeating. I'm on a, some allergy medicine, so leave me alone. And it makes me eat a lot. I'm on prednisone right now. And so I'm eating about five meals a day, but I still, nevertheless, I, I feel convicted about that. What's, what do I mean by that? I mean, I feel sorrowful about that. You may say, hey, I'm convicted right now about my overspending, or I'm convicted right now about you know, the fact that I'm not reading my Bible. Or I feel convicted right now that I, I sleep through the, the morning gathering, whatever it may be that you may say, hey, I feel convicted about that thing. And what is it that you mean that you feel convicted? What do you mean by that? What you mean by that is that you feel sorrow for doing it. You feel bad. You feel remorse for the life that you're living. Now listen, guilt for sin is a good thing. Don't hear me say anything else. Guilt for sin, that is a good thing. The spirit does convict. No sinner can repent apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to do a work on the inside. He has to turn on the light. He has to give life. He has to grant repentance and faith. But when Jesus says this here, he's speaking much more than just feeling remorse for wrongdoing. Unbelievers, pagans can feel remorse for wrongdoing. I mean, there are folks who do horrible, horrific things and they feel a genuine sense of sorrow for the thing that they have done. They feel a different, a, a genuine sense of remorse and that isn't necessarily the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of our human conscience. That God, as he has made us as a way for God to restrain evil, as God has given us a conscience. Now, some people's consciences can become seared, right? Scripture talks about that in the end times. There'll be those who have had their conscience seared like with a hot iron. So they no longer feel guilt and bad and what's, hey, that's not bad and that's not wrong. But for the most part, so many of us, we know when we, when we do something wrong, we feel a sense of guilt, a sense of remorse. And that's a good thing. That's God restraining evil. That's to keep us all from being, I don't know, Jeffrey Dahmer's or Ted Bundy's or whoever else. That's a good work in here. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about this. He's not talking about the spirit making us feel sorrow or remorse. That the word used con to convict here is actually a legal word. In fact, we see that in the context. He's going to convict the world concerning, look, sin, righteousness, judgment. There it is, judgment. He's using judicial language here. Now I want you to think about the word to convict in a judicial sense. I want you to think about it if it was used in a, in a courtroom. It has a, it has a totally different meaning in a courtroom to convict than it does to feel sorrowful, right? To feel remorse for something. It means to, to, uh, to be indicted by evidence or even it could mean to be proven guilty. If you say that a criminal was convicted, what you mean when you say that is you mean a trial has been had and the trial is over and they've been proven guilty. The evidence has been rolled out. 
You're not talking about an emotional feeling here. You're talking about something judicial, something outside of them. You're talking about, you're talking about this person was measured against the law. Evidence was given and they were found guilty. The proof is in, they're convicted. The verdict is that they are guilty. That's a conviction. And that's the sense of this word that Jesus is using here. What Jesus is saying is when the spirit comes, the spirit will give a a final verdict. He will be rendering a final verdict and that verdict will be guilt. Verse number eight, when he comes, he will convict the world. That means he will find the world to be guilty. The spirit will prosecute the world. The spirit will roll out the evidence and the final verdict will be guilty. How is the spirit doing that? Will he be doing that as he also fulfills another work of his ministry? Remember what Jesus has also been saying throughout this discourse? When the spirit comes, the spirit will bring into remembrance all that I have taught you. What is Jesus alluding to and pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the fact that these disciples and their associates will be the ones who will write the New Testament. What is the, how does God, how does God bring out a sense of, uh, of guilt? How does God bring about his verdict? How does the spirit do it? He does it in this way through the preaching of the revelation of God. It is through the preaching and the proclamation of the word of God. It is whenever you and I share the gospel with another individual, what is happening there is the spirit, whether they recognize it or not, but the spirit is bringing a verdict to bear upon their hearts. And that verdict, if they are an unbeliever, is that you are guilty. This is the pattern from the beginning. Let's walk through kind of the Old Testament, start in Genesis and think through preachers in the Bible. Like if you could think about maybe chronologically who was the first preacher of the Bible, even though he's only gets a short airway in the book of Genesis, but in the book of Jude, Jude talks about a guy by the name of Enoch. And Enoch is a preacher is what Jude says. Genesis, you don't really get that picture, but in Jude, Jude talks about Enoch being a preacher, maybe the first preacher, because this is what he says um, in Jude. Let me see, Jude 14. So there's only one chapter in Jude, but in Jude 14, it says, and about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So you think, you think generationally, he's the seventh from Adam. That's old, right? That's way, 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 way back there. The seventh in genealogy from Adam, he prophesied. He prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's happening in that text is what you see is you see Enoch the preacher, Enoch the prophet. See, oftentimes when you think about prophecy, you think about that just as it predicting the future, but that's not really what prophecy is. Even in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible, the prophet is the one who's dealing with the revelation of God. God reveals God reveals his will and his ways and his word to his people through a prophet. And then that prophet is the herald. He's the one proclaiming it to the people and calling them to repentance. That's what Enoch is doing here. Enoch is a preacher and Enoch is preaching. Where did Enoch get his message? He got it from the Holy Spirit of God. He's a man called and anointed and God has revealed this to him. And what is his message that he's preaching? 
sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's calling to the ungodly, sin, you are sinners. God is righteous, now repent, come. Judgment day is coming. And so Enoch is a preacher. As you look through the Old Testament, you see other prophets of God being raised up. Who are they? Again, they are men called of God, anointed of God. God reveals his word to them. So you can look through the Bible, you can see Elijah and Elisha and and, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Joel, even David, and even Moses. And they're dealing with the revelation of God. That's why when they write at the end of the writings, they can say, thus saith the Lord, because God is revealing this to them. And what is the word? What are they saying to the people? They are calling, they're preaching, they're prophesying to the people. And they're saying, repent, you are sinners. Wash your hands, come to the Lord, offer sacrifices, turn, Come to to the Lord. The Spirit reveals his word to them and they preach and they call people to repentance. They convict. They're saying you're guilty and they're calling them to repentance. And here is the pattern. The people are in sin and God raises up and calls and anoints a prophet and the prophet preaches under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit reveals God's word to them, he preaches sin, righteousness, and judgment. And some repent and the world persecutes and murders them and kills them. That's the pattern. Jesus will even say this. He'll say, you have killed and murdered all the prophets that have come to you, Israel. The pattern is you have these men all throughout Bible, and then all of a sudden there's a break. God, I don't know what he does, but God chooses under his divine and sovereign choice. He goes on a 400 year hiatus for 400 years in Well, God doesn't go on a hiatus. A prophet goes on a hiatus. For 400 years, God, there is no prophet in Israel. That's a long time, right? 400 years is a long time. For 400 years, there's not a single prophet calling the people to repent. And then all of a sudden, God raises up one, John the Baptist. God anoints him and calls him. Spirit's upon him, even in in his mother's womb, the spirit is upon him. And John the Baptist, he comes and what does John the Baptist do? He begins to preach. He begins to convict the people. He renders them guilty by the revelation of God. He says to them, oh, you brood of vipers, who is it to warn you about the wrath that is to come? That's what he says. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance, calling them to repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's John the Baptist's message? Sin, righteousness, judgment then Jesus comes on the scene. Oh, hold on. What happens, and what happens to John the Baptist? Woo, tell us some more, John the Baptist. When, G, when John the Baptist takes that message to Herod, he's beheaded for it. When John the Baptist preaches to Herod and tells him this affair that you're having is ungodly, okay, that's fine. And they behead John the Baptist. They persecute him, they kill him. Jesus comes on as the consummate prophet the perfect preacher, and Jesus preaches. And what's Jesus's message? I know that our culture likes to paint Jesus's message like Jesus is some kind of hippie, 
just got out of a VW bus with flowers in his hair and Chaco sandals on his feet. And that's not Jesus at all. Good words. Hey, go and love people. No, Jesus is a preacher. And what's he preaching? Let me, you, you want to guess? He got, he's got three sermons, sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's Jesus's sermons over and over again. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Jesus brings about the, the sense of, he prosecutes the people. He brings a sense of conviction to the hearts. And what happens? They harden their hearts, they stiffen their necks, and they persecute Jesus until the point of death. And now what Jesus is telling his disciples is I'm about to send you into the world to preach the good news. And here's the good news. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit's gonna come upon you. It's gonna fill you. As we see in Acts chapter two, when Peter steps up and begins to preach, what's he preaching? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And after he finishes preaching, some are saved, 3,000 are saved in that day. But what else happens? Persecution arises. As Jesus sends out his disciples, they go into the hedges and the highways and the faraway places. He calls, uh, he calls the apostle Paul, sends Paul out. Paul goes out, preaches, brings conviction, has the, the gumption to, to call people to write to, to repentance. He preaches sin, righteousness, uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and the same thing happens. They're persecuted. Paul tells Timothy and Titus in 2 Timothy 4.2, young Timothy preached the word. That word preach that he uses there, preach is the same word that he talks about the work of the spirit is to convict, bring conviction, render the world guilty by the preaching of his word. That's what he's saying. Be ready in season and out of season, preach the word. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1.9, it's the role of an elder. He says the elder must be able to hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. That's the revealed word of God. You gotta be able to know it. You gotta be able to be filled with it, to be an elder of the church. You gotta be, be able to know to, so that you can fight off wolves that wanna come in and ravage the church so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That means he needs to be a teacher, but also he says to rebuke, to rebuke those who contradict it. The word he uses there is rebuke, is the word to convict. Same word, it's to render them guilty. And what is our message? Look at what Jesus says. You just got one message to preach, don't mess it up. Concerning sin, what sin? Jesus says just one sin because they do not believe in me. There's just one particular sin and it's the sin of unbelief. And that is what we're calling people to do. When we call someone to repentance, we're not just telling them to change their behavior, but ultimately what we're calling them to do is if they're an unbeliever is to believe in Jesus. When you're not, when we share the gospel with someone, we're preaching the good news of who Jesus is with them. We're sharing that good news. We're telling them there. We're calling them to believe in Christ, to believe upon Jesus because this is what we will be weighed against. What good is it for someone to keep the 10 commandments and not believe in Jesus? And what good is it for someone to live a moral life? I mean, that helps us out. I want everybody to live a moral life, but what good is it for them to do that and not believe in Jesus? The sin that sends us to hell is a sin of unbelief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the sin that sends us to hell. 
not believing in Jesus, not acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. That what we do when we share the gospel, when we preach the gospel, what we are doing is we are pointing people to Jesus. That's the sin that we're calling out in this world. Everything else will fall into place if people believe in Jesus, if people see Jesus for who he is. If they believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the creator, the Savior, the the lamb who has come to die for our sins, if they believe in that, everything else will fall into place. Our paramount job is to preach the gospel. That's our paramount job. What are we doing here in this room? We're preaching the gospel. What is it that we're doing in our community groups? Guess what? We're preaching the gospel. What is it we're doing in our DNA groups? We're preaching the gospel. Because why? Because that's what we need in our lives is to believe in the gospel. That in fact, there was a time when the gospel got all watered down and got lost in religion and got lost in Christianity. Christianity became a series of works and not based upon faith in Christ and Christ alone. And then there was a guy that got anointed and called. I'm not calling a prophet with a capital P, but he worked as a prophet, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, that he's studying his Bible one day and he gets filled with all this knowledge. A couple of things that Martin Luther saw in scripture. One of the things that was foundational that Martin Luther came to understand was what, what God's word was. He began to see God's word as the revealed inspired word of God that is for all of God's saints, for the maturing and for the growing of them up. And Martin Luther realizes that the Bible's not even in their language. How can they read it, much less understand it? And so Martin Luther begins to, to, to have the Bible translated. He begins to kick against what the Catholic church has taught for years. He also came to believe in faith in Christ alone. In fact, there's a, there's a painting in a church in Wittenberg, there's, there's gonna be, I know that's not the best um, rendering of it. I did the best I could, but there's this painting and it's in a, a centerpiece. That's what it's called. It's a altarpiece in St. Mary's Church in Wittenberg, uh, Germany, which is where Martin Luther did most of his work. And this is a artist rendering of the preaching of Martin Luther. So Martin Luther is in the pulpit and notice the pulpit is high and lifted up. And Martin Luther is standing there preaching. And then you have on the other side, you have a congregation. But notice that it's hard to see here. And maybe you want to go back and look this up. But in the artist's rendering, what Martin Luther is doing as he's preaching is Martin Luther's hand is resting in the Bible. In fact, one, his index finger, I think he was probably left-handed. I don't know. His index finger is pointing at a text of scripture. And then with his other text, his other pointer, his other finger, where's he pointing? He's pointing at a Christ crucified. This is Martin Luther's understanding of what we are to do when we preach the gospel. We are to take God's word and we are to extract from it the beauty and the mystery and the sin and the righteousness and the judgment that is in it towards Christ being crucified. And then if you'll notice there is the congregation and look at them. They're not looking at Martin Luther. That makes me feel better because I feel like most of the time you aren't looking at me. They are looking at who? At Christ and him crucified. That's what's happening. The eyes of the congregation are fixed upon Christ and him crucified. And this is preaching. This is us when we share the gospel because in this is the verdict. This is the verdict that the wounds of Christ, the wounds of Christ is God's judgment to the world that you are sinners in need of a savior. No one looks at the wounds of Christ and says, hey, I'm good. Hey, I can do this on my own. 
No one really sees the wounds of Christ and says, you know what? I think I can make it on my own. I think my morality is good enough. I think I've done enough good in my life to outweigh the bad. I'm ready to stand before judgment. No one looks at the wounds of Christ and sees that. And when you genuinely see the wounds of Christ, you see yourself as the one who put them there. The wounds of Christ are two things for us. They are one, they are a a verdict that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That God loved this world so much and he loved us sinners so much that he sent his only begotten son to come and to die for us, to stand in our place, to live the life that you and I could not live, to die the death that we deserved, to be pierced and and spat upon because of our transgressions, That's what the wounds of Christ say. The wounds of Christ say your morality is no good. Your good works are no good. Your religion is no good. You must believe upon my son. They are God's final verdict. That's why the Holy Spirit is going to bring this whenever he makes known to them all that he has done. But the second thing the wounds of Christ are is the wounds of Christ are the means of acquittal. They say guilty. Guilty, 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 but they also are the means of acquittal. Charles Wesley wrote in his song, and we sing it here, Arise, my soul, arise. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive him, they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. That's the means of acquittal. That's the means of acquittal. Here's the deal. We preach God's verdict upon sinners to believe in Jesus. God's righteousness is made perfect in Christ. Only Christ is the only one who entered into the Father. That's what Jesus said, I'm, I'm ascending, I'm going to back to the Father. Only Jesus could go into the Father on his own because only Jesus was righteous. Your righteousness is not enough. You're in that center part. And then lastly, he also says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is Satan. And here's the argument. If God has, If God has judged the most powerful evil force in the universe, then how do you think you will escape his judgment? It's the same argument that Peter uses in 2 Peter 2. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, it's the argument of from the greater to the lesser, then how do you think that you will escape? The only means of escape has been made in Christ. The Spirit brings conviction and declares us to be guilty. Christ has come with his righteousness and says, come, believe in me. Repent, come and receive. Come with only the empty hands of faith and believe and put all your faith and all your trust in me and watch watch me wash you new. Watch me make you new. And then for you and I, we have no fear of judgment. Jesus bears that judgment for us. Let's pray. Jesus. By your stripes, we are healed. By your, by your wounds, we've been made whole. And we thank you for that. 
Spirit, I pray today that you would do what only you could do in resurrecting the dead that may be in this room and call them to faith in you, Lord. And Lord, for those of us who are your disciples, may we stay, may we abide, and may we grow, and may we mature, and may we hold on to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we would love and cherish your gospel, your good news all the more. We would rejoice in it as we come and as we remember your wounds that have been received. That as we come, that we would worship you. Help us to be slow, Lord. I know we're thinking about, okay, I need to get this and do this and do this with the picnic, but may we just linger here for a few minutes with you. May we just linger thinking about you and thinking about what you've done for us as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we pray, as we sing this song. Lord, it's all for you, Jesus, and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.